Welcome to a Men in Blazers pod special. Our guest today is Hollywood's equivalent of a five-tool player. He's a producer, composer, screenwriter, and he's even mastered the ancient art of the novel. His adaptation of Fargo for FX has earned him an Emmy for Best Miniseries, and if you've not seen it, you can binge watch all 10 episodes of the second series, June 4th, beginning 10 a.m., on FX. If all this wasn't enough, this man's new book, Before the Fall, already hailed by the New York Times as one of the suspense novels of the year, is out this week. So we welcome to this pod, joining us right here in the crap part of Soho, the one, the only, an American hero, Mr. Noah Hawley. Right on. Oh, Noah. I'm thrilled to have you here. It's so good to be here. First, I've got to say, as a leading member of Team Hansi, it is an absolute honor to sit opposite the man who dreamt him up. But also today, you release your fifth book before the fall. So I want to start with the obvious questions, because the obvious questions are the ones that are always grounded in human jealousy. With everything that you have in production right now, how the hell do you have time to write a book, Noah Hawley? Uh, I don't, is the answer. I don't have time to write a book at all. And in fact, this was worse because I I had written the first 150 pages or so before Fargo, before the first year of Fargo, put it in a drawer. Um, and then you made the show and then started winning all the awards and my agent quite smartly took it out of the drawer and sent it out as a partial manuscript. Uh, and we had an auction one week for the book and an auction for the movie rights the next week. And then now I had to finish the book while we were making the second season of Fargo and, and editing it. And uh, it's a blur, basically, is what is what it is. But there was definitely a Christmas uh, break there, two weeks off from the show, which was great, during which I basically just wrote. You killed this book in the two weeks of no. the... <clears throat> that's a great story, but that's not what happened. I did write about 100 pages. But when we were chatting before we went on, you talked about that freelance muscle that you've never quite shucked. Well, I'm starting to you now. Onwards. Yeah, no, it's, you know, when you're hustling and, and, and TV, the TV business is a hustling business, you know, you write a pilot, you get the pilot picked up, you make the pilot, then, then are they going to pick it up to go to series, then you get the series pick up, then for, you know, for like four or five months... You're making the show. You're the king of the hill. You've got this $60 million corporation you're the CEO of, and you're making a 1,000 decisions a day, and then they cancel the show. Like my second show was canceled after it was seven days. It went from being the, the premiere show, the first dollar show of the fall season, to canceled in eight days. They canceled it the day after the second you episode. You didn't even have time to say, nothing can go wrong now. Exactly, exactly. And, and, so, and then you end up, you know, like Napoleon on the island, and, and, <laughs> and, and, and nobody's calling and there's nothing to do. And so to avoid that, you start to try to take on a lot of different things so that you're, you're not on that roller coaster. But then, of course, what happens when you reach a certain level, which I did after Fargo, is everything goes. And then you're like, well, I, I can't make all this stuff at the same time. But then, of course, you have to because you are the guy who said yes. The guy who says yes can never invade Europe by no. leaving Elba. Just remember from Napoleon's mistakes. Yes. Live and learn. I, I read your book before last week. I've got to say the second scene, I'm giving nothing away here. because It's also on the back cover in which the protagonist fights for his life, swimming heroically with a four-year-old fellow survivor four miles to reach the shore after a plane crash, which perhaps because I read this book on a plane flight, it made me sob 
It made me absolutely sob, and I found it impossible to put the book down from there on. Would you be offended if I called this book Rashomon meets the Great American Beach Read? Let me think about that. No, I would not be offended. Oh, crap my pants for a minute then. <laughs> uh, no, I appreciate that. I mean, m- my goal is always, and it's the same with the show, is if, I, I feel like if you entertain people, they give you permission to do more. And, and, you know, the show Fargo for me is, it's a second watch show. It's you watch it the first time to see what happens. And it's unpredictable on some level. And then when you look back, the story seems inevitable. So you want to go back and watch it knowing where, where, what happens. And, and, you know, and I feel like you, the audience gives you permission to do more thematically or, or with character. So, you know, you got to tell a great story. And then within that, you can make these digressions into character and theme. We'll, we'll talk about Fargo in a minute. But this book, this book is you going back to your roots, which were in fiction. You started off as a writer in the legendary San Francisco Grotto, writing books, making television, though, screenplay writing. They're all so different. There's discipline. One's a lonely pursuit. The other, a massive ensemble business in which you are. I mean, you said yourself, essentially a creative CEO. To me, they're kind of loosely connected, but very different Olympic disciplines. It's like being good at the 100 metres, the 1500 metres, and the 3000 metre steeplechase. How did you know that you have the inherent ability to win a gold medal in all of them? You know, my motto is, what else can I get away with? And, and my feeling was, is like, <laughs> they let me, somebody published a book, so I was a novelist, and then what, what about a movie? Would somebody buy a movie from me? And then I sold a screenplay, and I thought, okay, this is great. Now they think I'm a screenwriter also. And then somebody said, what do you think about TV? And I was like, I'm for it. Like, let's see what, what happens. Um, and, uh, you know, I feel like on, on one level, you're, you either have the brain from doing multiple things at once or, or, or you don't. And, and there are plenty of, of great artists who wa- only want to do one thing. It's too hard to switch tracks. And, you know, I'm certainly pushing the, the envelope of multiple projects at this moment. Um, but, you know, I feel like I'm, I'm an instinctual storyteller and... and we can be sitting in a room talking about Fargo and I can walk next door to talk about the, another show called Legion or, or uh, you know, as I had at one point, go to a third room and talk about uh, adapting Kurt Vonnegut to uh, uh, Cat's Cradle. And, you know, you sit there and you listen and your brain gets into that zone and you think, oh, yeah, this is how this is our storytelling approach on this thing. So this is a fun idea. Let's play with this. And uh, but, you know, some days are harder than others. I mean, you make it seem so easy as you're strolling between exactly. rooms. Strolling. Yeah. But is your plotting process, is it different for books than for television? Yeah, because I feel like a book is, you know, really informed by the internal states of characters. So, so you know, it's, you're, you're inside the characters' minds and thought processes in a way that you're not. I mean, you, that work, all you have on the screen is behavior and dialogue, you know, action and dialogue, and you, you're never going to hear the character's thoughts or that process. So, you know, you hear a lot of book writers talk about how they thought the character was going to do one thing and they ended up doing something else, and then you, you say, oh, come on, you sound like an asshole, like you wrote the book. But the reality is sometimes, like, you know, you write your way to a character's emotional state, and then you find that they're saying something or doing something, you know, that was not necessarily what you planned on originally. How do you think about yourself? The way you described your career arc, you make it sound like you did one thing well and people create an opportunity for you and you're like, okay, and it kept on kind of tumbling. So you're a screenwriter right. now, so you're a showrunner now. 
that's all externally applied definitions of what you are. How do you describe yourself to yourself? I just tell stories. Um, and, and, you know, I've moved into directing on, on the show, and I just directed this Legion pilot. But, it's, you know, that's also storytelling. And, and you know, there, there is this sense, especially if you're in a visual medium, right? And TV used to be, TV used to be talking heads. It used to be close-up, close-up, you know, chase sequence, close-up, close-up, you know. So there was nothing cinematic about it. But, you know, starting with, obviously, The Sopranos and, and The Wire and, and Breaking Bad, TV started to tell the story with the camera more. So, you know, I'm always excited in a script if I can have four or five pages without dialogue, which is really just building suspense and telling the story that way. And at that point, you know, that you're that you're basically using the script to tell the story with the camera, it's sort of a natural step if you have the inclination to, to remove the middleman and, and become the director of that, um, um, of that story yourself. So, I don't know, but it, for me, it's just about trying to get to that organic um, story and truth and cast the right characters, the right actors, etc. You make it seem so effortless, like a surfer just gliding on the wave through all of these different disciplines. I, I sold you short when I said you started off in the grotto trying to be a lit gentleman, because you actually started as a singer-songwriter, right? A, fun, yes. a funk purveyor, turn lit star, turn TV writer, turn showrunner. I mean, these are completely different cultures to navigate. New York downtown grunge, San Francisco grotto, coffee house culture, where the suffering is real, Hollywood lot glamour with its dozens of assistants and air kisses and kind of secret mores that you have to understand. How do you view your own rise, Noah? Are there different distinct Noah Hawley eras, like the Paleolithic, the Neolithic, <laughs> and the post-Enlightenment Noah Hawley? Or do they all just seem like you're making them sound, and I don't believe one just simple, right. effortless flow between cultures? No, the, 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 the pottery from my rock star days has just appeared. Uh, <laughs> the substrata. Those cave paintings of, are yeah, amazing. Yeah. Uh, you know, the interesting thing, certainly in the the Hollywood dynamic is that there's a narrative, right? And, and there's the, the perception of value. And, and if you can create that narrative of being a, a, a creator, you know, an original voice and, and maintain that, then, then that's the story that people believe about you. And, and some of it is luck. You know, I went from, I mean, I started out, uh, as you said, um, you know, I published a novel and then I sold a spec screenplay and then, you know, I, to Patrick Stewart. I, to Patrick Stewart, yes. Sorry, Sir Patrick Stewart. Sir Patrick Stewart, who gave me one of the uh, epic dressing downs of all time on a on a phone call uh, in a in, in a moving vehicle. I had to pull over to the side of the road. <laughs> what the God, you got uh, to tell, tell that story. Uh, so I, you know, I my first book was a conspiracy of tall men, which was optioned by Paramount, and and, and Sir Patrick uh, had started a uh, hung a shingle. It was right after he'd played uh, Picard for the first time, I believe, in the movie, etc. And uh, you in the knighthood essentially but go I, on. I did basically and and um and so then i wrote the spec screenplay which was called uh, uh the alibi they turned into a steve coogan movie called lies and alibis and and uh anyway but patrick and his and his then wife who who had been a i think a post producer on next generation they hung this shingle and so i didn't really know anybody in town and i'd written the script and, I, and they read it and they said oh we love this and we'd like to go out with it and whatever a period of some months went by during which time I had acquired a, an agent in Hollywood and an attorney and the agent said all right well they've had enough time with it so we're going to go out with it and 
So the agency basically took the script away from them and sent it out, uh, you know, which is a normal process in the town. So I'm driving to meet my now now wife for uh, for dinner. And phone rings and and it is Sir Patrick on the phone and he is uh, I'm not sure the uh, what the English approximation for how mad he would be, but budget crazy. Yeah, royally pissed or something, and you know proceeded to lay into me for for like you know the sort of like epitome of Hollywood backstabbing, et cetera. I'm new to town. Like, I, I don't know what I'm doing. And, and you know, we want the, the the celebrities to like us, right? So anyway, he lays in. And he's a, look, he's a royal Shakespearean trained actor and, and was the captain of the universe, the free universe. You he's know? all about that. Yeah, 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 yeah. So that scene for him to play, and plus, you know, his, his wife then being the producing partner, um, you know, and her feelings being heard, it became a very personal um, thing. So he, you know, he laid into me and I'm trying to defend myself and saying, you know, as a new agent and tactics and all that, you know, sort of thing. And he, you know, reamed me for a few minutes and then, and then he said, uh, uh, welcome to Hollywood, Noah, good luck with your new tactics. And he hung up the phone and I showed up at the dinner with my wife and she's like, what happened to you? Shaking. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. But the best part was of course that they are, they were still the producers on the book. And once I had sold a screenplay, uh, the Paramount hired me to adapt my book, and I, so then I had to, then there was this whole, like, that never happened meeting in the parking lot of uh, <laughs> of the Fred Siegel, where it was like, we hugged it out, et cetera, so, yeah, it's, uh, we all have those stories uh, somewhere. Oh, I've been reamed out, I, I, all of us listening, we need to get our lives to a certain place where we get reamed out. If I could Patrick do the voice, Stewart. it would be a better story, but uh, it, was a, it was an epic uh, drive. It's in sure. the game, but I'll say Fargo 2 for me, was one of the most perfectly crafted pieces of television that I've ever seen. Well, thank you. I'm so grateful to you for making it. It was set in the winter of 1979. It follows the travails of a Minnesota beautician, Peggy Blumquist, brilliantly played by Kirsten Dunst, and her husband, butcher Ed Landry Clark's Jesse Plemons, as they attempt to cover up a hit-and-run accident that involves a member of the Fargo crime family if you've not seen it listeners i don't know what you've been doing with your life but as i said the whole series re-airs in a marathon on june the 4th on fx i've got to ask you though deciding to riff off a coen brothers movie such a bold move in the first place they've such a devoted hardcore subculture you can either create something agonizingly that gets their approval but then you can disappear down the coen brothers wormhole and alienate the wider American audience. How did you do that dance? Now, I want to know what made you want to risk doing that dance to begin with? I mean, to have the human impulse to essentially touch the third rail of a right. subway. Uh, well, it was a terrible idea. And then <laughs> when it worked, it was a worse idea to throw it out and start again. But, you know, I feel like we've been rewarded for that risk taking in the first year and that, and that you know, uh, our best chance of critical success in the second year was was to take the same or, or a greater risk um, just in in expanding what Fargo could be, you know. I mean, when I first sat down with FX, I said, why is the movie called Fargo, right? It takes place in Minnesota. The first scene, the first five minutes takes place in North Dakota, but the rest of it takes place in Minnesota, and it's called Fargo because that word is so evocative of a place, you know, what... Joel and Ethan Cohen described as Siberia with family restaurants. And, and 
you know, it's a place where you, you, you can have the Swedish meatballs at the buffet and then freeze to death in the parking lot. And, but now after the movie, the word Fargo also means this sort of true crime case where truth is stranger than fiction, this fake true story. So if we're not remaking the movie, if, if there are no characters from the movie in the show and, and we're not doing the story of the movie in the show, then how is it an adaptation of the movie except we're taking this word Fargo and we're saying that, that it creates a mind space for, you know, in which you think, oh, it's a story about a crime where you meet the criminals before the crime is committed and it involves a, you know, a basically decent law enforcement uh, officer who's probably in over her head, et cetera. And so the first year was a more literal, you know, it's like Martin Freeman's character is a kind of paradigm for Bill Macy and, and, and Alison Tolman is kind of Francis McDormand, except not really. And, and then, you know, uh, Billy Bob's character was not like a character you found in Fargo, but it, there was a Cohen-esque quality, I suppose. And so then, then the sort of geometric math to say, all right, now it's the second year, can we turn Fargo into an American epic? about the death of the family business and the rise of corporate America and, and add a hundred extra moving parts and characters and, and have it, you know, and, and Bruce Campbell is Ronald Reagan and there's a and UFO. The open wound of war. Yeah, and, and that sense of a country that is, you know, at its lowest point and doesn't realize that, you know, it's morning in America in just a year, you know, for, for better or worse, that, that the 70s are about to become the 80s. <laughs> So, um, and that was a, you know, that's a complicated dance to try to take that time period, which is what I wanted to do, and not just have it be a backdrop for, for a crime story, but to say, can we turn 1979 into a crime story? But it's a structure. It's also a tone of storytelling. And as a creative bloke, is it frustrating to always write in someone else's voice? Is there a moment after Fargo 1 that you're like, hang on, this was me doing this. This was not Coen Brothers. This was Hawley, non-brother. And capturing the Cohen tone rather than your tone. I mean, Hawley doing Cohen. Do you ever feel like a presidential speechwriter always writing for someone else's voice that's not your own? Not really, because that, that, that didn't feel like what the story was. I mean, it wasn't... I didn't feel like I was hiding behind a curtain and everyone was saying, you know, Joel and Ethan have made this tremendous television show. I think, <laughs> I think in fact, I, I found myself much more front and center than, than I was expecting on some level, which was, you know, it's like, how, how does one... And, and, you know, the reality is that, you know, the show is probably 60 or 70% Cohen and 30, 40% me, and more so in the second year, the, there is, a, you know, a tone of voice that's very natural for me. Um, in writing the show, and then the book is a very, you know, the book has a different voice to it, certainly, but, you know, there's humor in it, and there's there's a balance of drama in it, and I'm playing with structure in it, and, you know, all those elements are, are there in in the work. I just feel like each story that you tell, the structure of it needs to reflect the content of it, so. As a, as a viewer, I've got to say this, please, please do a series for FX based on a serious man. Just, I would love to. I just rewatched that actually. Just the uh, dentist scene in the serious yeah, man. The, the goy the goy's teeth scene deserves its own sprawling epic treatment. Well, you know, we had our parable sequence in the first year and I you know, as I said to the network, it's like it's look, it's not that I want a ten minute parable <laughs> sequence, but it's a Cohen <laughs> Brothers movie, so I kind of need one and, and that was a crazy you know, we did the 
Colin Hanks tells the story of the man who tried to give everything away, including his body, and and you know that was a it was a sort of production nightmare because it's a whole sequence that takes like five minutes in the episode, but we had to build all these two wall sets and and uh, you know create this own world inside of our world, and but I find that stuff the most exciting. I've got to ask you about Hansi Dent. Yeah, he's the me I wish I was, a truly sympathetic character who's actually a master of deadly violence. Yeah. Who's your favorite character that you built in the Fargo universe? Oh, that's a hard one, I would say. I mean, you know, Billy's character, Malvo, is, will always have a special place in my heart because I feel like that's what I brought to Fargo in a way, that character which said, you know, this isn't just the movie. This isn't just we're going to have a Marge and we're going to have a Jerry Lundegaard and, you know, they're going to be thinly veiled versions. Malva was, he wasn't Anton Chigurh and he wasn't Peter Stormare and he wasn't the lone biker of the apocalypse. You know, he was something new. Um, you know, he was a, he was a, a creature of the wilderness whose, whose only really driving goal was to see could he turn civilized people into animals and how far could he push them. And he would sacrifice everything for that. And he was so fun, and, and he broke so many rules, and, and um, you know, having him, you know, meeting him after a year as a dentist, like, that that was the most fun sort of stuff to write, <laughs> definitely. Oh, I've just been in Iceland, where the manager of the national team, a fantastic football team, is also a part-time dentist. Oh, the yeah. The whole time I was interviewing him, I thought Billy Bob Thornton. Yeah, as Billy would say, aces. <laughs> I've got a hard segue to move out of Billy Bob Thornton to this question, but I've got to ask you, what is the secret to writing screenplay surrounded by violence, but to write so well for women's voices, Floyd Gerhardt, Betty Solverson? Well, I mean, the violence is... For me, the violence should never be entertainment. Um, and I think that so much of violence in, in our modern stories is entertainment, you know, in the superhero movies, et cetera. It's like it's all about the violence and, and people talk between, but we want to build up to these epic sequences. And I feel like in Joel and Ethan's movies, the, the violence is never entertaining. It's, it's always sort of shocking and, and grotesque, you know, when Peter Stromer shoots that, that state trooper and the blood arcs out of his head and gets on on you know Buscemi and he says whoa daddy like that's it's a it's because it's been fun up until that moment and then it's really kind of disturbing and so and I think that plays well into into the female characters because it's not this macho you know black hat versus white hat there is there is a tragedy to it and and I like the second year is a great example because there were so many moving parts and you would think Jesse Plemons, Ed Blomquist, he's our hero, and so no matter who comes to kill him, we're rooting for him. And then I send a kid with cerebral palsy, you know, to shoot him, and now who are you rooting for? Do you know what I mean? And, and so it goes from being something that's very obvious to something that for the audience is a little bit uncomfortable and, and requires them to kind of look at their own enthusiasm for, for that violence. Oh, you would have been a very good games master in the Hunger Games. <laughs> exactly. You would have been yes. the greatest. Yeah. Well, you know, the biggest um, twists always have to be moral, I think. <sighs> Details leaking out about Fargo Season 3, which debuts in 2017. It's a World Cup off year, thank God. Ewan McGregor, 
Ewan, One yes. of our finest. Yes. We'll play not one, but two characters. I know. Emmett and Ray Stussy. Yeah. At the center of the story, one you will know as the parking lot king of Minnesota. There can be only one. The other is a pot-bellied parole officer with his best days behind him. I want to talk about the mental pressure of putting season three together, putting season two together. I mean, you have a show that's become revered. Yeah. And then you've got to come back and give us more. Yeah. How do you keep up in the ante without destroying the inner values which made it popular in the first place? It demands both, I imagine, creativity and a rigor. Yeah, you're really stressing me out right now. It's, uh... Yeah, that idea of placing a statue of yourself on the writer's <laughs> room table at the first meeting was probably not, not a yeah. good one. No, no. Uh, you know, you, you just have to focus on the creative work. You have to say, well, this, this story is its own story, and how do we tell the best version of this story? And I can't control the way that people respond to the story. I couldn't have told you going into the release of, of our second year that critics were going to review it even uh, more highly than they reviewed the first year. Um, I just made the best show that I could make. And here, again, it's a very different story. It's not an epic on the same level. It is a more personal, more intimate story. But it's also not the first year. It's it, it, its its own animal. And, and on some level, I, I, don't, I won't be able to tell you until we've written it and, and I'm halfway through making it what it really wants to be because there is a discovery process to it. I didn't find my way to the split screens that we used in the second year until we were cutting the first two episodes together. And I just try to stay open to what the story wants to be. And, you know, the, the cliche is that a story gets written three times. You write the script, and then you write it again when you film it, and then you write it again in the editing room. And, and I, I believe that to be true. I find the editing room to be a very exciting place to sort of tell the story. And then when you've got a lot of moving pieces the way that I do, the show becomes modular. You know, you can sort of say... Well, on paper, these scenes wanted to go in this particular order, but now on screen, you want to move these things around, and maybe you want to be, maybe you want to cut these scenes together so that you're intercutting between two things. Like it's a very exciting way to tell a story. Where do you get those details? Talk about the split screen, the uh-huh. Jabberwocky speech. Yeah. In in the book, Exercise Pioneer, Jack Lalane, which I savored more than. I mean, more than any detail, a cameo role, which is just so fantastically yeah. detailed. Where do they come from in the process? Are they late in? Are they early in? Do, they, do you have them before you start? It's fantastic. No, I had Jack LaLanne early in the, in the process. Uh, and I couldn't tell you why on some level, other than that there's a specificity to it. You know, I mean, I, they always try to tell you in, in Hollywood that to make something for the biggest audience, you need to make something as general as possible. But I find the opposite to be true. The more specific you make something, <laughs> the more crazy the character's mother is, the more people come up to you and go, that's my mom, you know? So it's, you know, I find that that specificity is really important. Um, and those details, you know, they just sort of sort of find their way in. I mean, I, I, I talked about... Uh, you know, Billy Bob is the dentist and saying aces. And that was just, you know, when I sat down to write that scene, that's what he said. And then that became, you know, we're okay then in the second year. You know, I wrote that, that sequence. Originally, when we, when Peggy hit, when the car hit Ry Gerhardt on the road, we stayed with it and Peggy got out of the car in the script and we saw her, we met her and we drove home with her. And then in the editing room, I realized, well, it'd be interesting if the car hit him and then just drove away, and we didn't know who <laughs> drove the car. So then I wrote this scene for, 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 for uh, Jesse leaving work, and we met him first, and he comes out of the back, and, and he says, okay, then, and the butcher says, okay, then, and you know, Noreen says, okay, then, and then that became a kind of runner for the show, and the network said, 
we feel like we could learn more about Jesse in this moment, maybe in his character. And I was like, no, I don't think you want to. I think that moment is going to tell you so much about it, you know, the simplicity of it. And, and uh, you know, and so that's, that's when it, where I push back to go, no, no, no. I know the instinct is to overwrite it, but imagine it with the actors and imagine it, you know, on camera. And, and you don't want it to be any more complicated than that. Do you have fear? Do you live with fear? Do you, do you look at True Detective season two and think, there, but for the grace of God, go I? Uh, no, I don't have a lot of fear. I don't, I don't feel like on that level. Um, you know, I, I don't know what to say about True Detective season two personally. Um, but, um, you know, for me, it's about, you know, being true to the world that you've created and the characters you've created and, 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 you know the fear. The fear gets in the way. The fun, the fun of a serious man, of ma- making a serious man. You know, which is I, I. I saw Joel and Ethan on this visit to New York, and I asked them because I just rewatched it, and they said, "Yeah, that one was." Uh, you know, we wrote Burn after reading, and you know, I think it was Focus, Universal Focus, and he said, "Well, we'll make this one if you let us make this other one right after, but we don't want to talk about it. We're just going to make it." You know, and and. And so it was one of those sort of one for you, one for us kind of things. And, and so, but you look at A Serious Man, which is a, it's a coming of age story on some level. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a Torah parable. It's, it's so many different things. And it's so sublime and it works so well. And none of it, the Goy's Teeth parable, like n- n- none of it is something that you would ever teach a class to do, you know, a writing class. You'd never say, okay, so you want to start with a guy, you know, and he's a physics professor in, in Minnesota in 1960, and his wife is leaving him for Cy Abelman. And, and, <laughs> and you know, and Cy who's huggy and brings him a nice Cabernet, and you got to let it breathe. And, you know, the whole thing was just such a great movie. God. That you like, how did you, they sit down and write that? It seems so, it must have come out of their heads fully formed. I go to a lot of movies and I always wonder what makes people talk all the way through or just laugh ridiculously loudly. It's so annoying. But when I went, that's the only movie I've ever seen where I was that guy. Yeah. I barely laughed all the way through yeah. the movie. Yeah, now it's genius. And I know the whole. It's genius. So you got Fargo 3 going down. You're working on Legion. Yes. An X-Men tie-in series for FX. Correct. You got the screenplay adaptation of your book, yeah. which is doing unbelievably well out the gate before the fall. You got book writing. You're a husband. You're a father of two. Yeah. You've got to enlighten us. What is the secret to productivity? Uh, you know, you, uh, you, can't be, you can't take it personally. You do personal work. You try to tell personal stories, but you can't take the reaction to that. You know, when you get a note, et cetera, they cancel a show, et cetera. You know, it's not you. They're not canceling you. They're not mad at you. They just, you know, and, and I'm a big believer in, you know, a lot of what I do is, is managing up and it's, it's uh, managing creative expectations and it's, you know, uh, network executives, studio executives, publishers, like they want to believe. They want to follow you over that hill, you know, and you say, come on, we're going over that hill. We're going to take the city. It's going to be great. They want to go. You just have to get them there. And a lot of the times the notes that you get are about are fear driven or they're about clarity or, you know, they just don't understand something or it's about something that's not what they think it is. You know, it's like you didn't set up something properly earlier. And so they feel like this moment is a problem, but actually this moment is fine. It's, you know, so a lot of it is that that time management that I have to spend as well, which is like you, you do the work and then you have to talk about the work and make them okay with making the work, et cetera. So I don't know, productivity, you know, I just, 
you know, I wake up in the morning, I'm like, what am I doing today? And then, you know, some days it's a writing day and some days it's an editing day and some days it's a, it's a business day. And, and, you know, you just try to, you know, you got to be a good first draft writer. I mean, what I always say is you got to be good enough to get in the room. You got to be good in the room and you got to deliver when you leave the room. Those are the three things that you have to be able to do. And then, and then, you know, they'll write you checks. Going to take them over that hill. <laughs> we got to go. Tell them you're going to, we got to go. Gonna, you're going to take that city. My it, problem in life, I realized talking to you is I've always favored laying siege. For no, years. no, no, no. It's Big the, mistake. It's, it's the mutt speech from stripes. That's what you got to <laughs> give them. You know, it's like, we're, what is it? We're four and one or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> well, you, t- you touch upon productivity. And time management. Why is your email habit? I was speaking with a productivity guru at the weekend. Yeah. And he told me that if I only looked at my email for five minutes three times a day, I could clear up a full half day a week. That is probably true. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I try. The good thing, you know, I live in Austin, Texas, which is two hours. Um, you get up two hours earlier than L.A. So it's not until noon, really, that L.A. is going. So I can have a whole morning writing, working, et cetera, before they're even waking up there. And then by the time somebody actually calls you on the phone, it's more like one or two in the afternoon. So that, that helps. But then, of course, what happens is you're putting the kids to bed and they still think that you should yeah. be taking notes, calls and stuff. So, you know, sometimes you have to do that. But <sighs> You're such a sacrificer. You're also a polymath, a man of many projects, many media, many styles. If I could go all Medici family and underwrite any cultural project of any size that you, Noah Hawley, have always dreamed of making, <laughs> what would it be? Oh, what was the dream project to make? Yeah, what are we making? I don't know. I think we should make Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy the way it should really be made, you know. The, the, uh, the original radio play told over all those hours, you know, as, as brilliantly executed as, as that story was, because that, that was a hugely inspirational story for me. Nothing can hold us back now. Last question. We've got a lot of young listeners to this show. Many, many admire your rise, your career arc, your accomplishments. I mean, you'd be shocked how many people own your funk album CDs. What was your funk album? <laughs> I would album? be surprised. What was it called? <laughs> what was it called? I can't even know. The, the band was Bass Nation. That was the name of the band. But I don't even know that it, you could find it anymore. It's like but. Ricky's. I had Ricky Gervais' album with oh, Shona yeah. dancing when he was trying to be a pop star. I still own that <laughs> with him on the cover. But what would you tell our listeners is the secret to success? Noah Hawley. Uh my feeling legitimately is if you get to do what you love for a living, you got to love doing it. And, and so for me, if it's not fun, I'm doing it wrong, you know, and, and as I said, what else can I get away with? So, you know, what, whenever we're up there in Calgary making the show or anywhere I am, it's, it's, it is, it's us against the world, you know, and, and I think that that sense of we're all in it together, that it's a collaborative art is really contagious and people want to be part of something that they, you know, there's there's the jobs you do for love and the jobs you do for money. And I never wanted my the work that I do to be for money. I always wanted it to be for love. And I want the people who work for me to be doing it because they love the work and not just as a money gig. So, you know, that that's my hope is to create an environment for everybody where everyone feels like they're doing their best work. And then we get to go home to our kids. Keep taking Hollywood over the hill. <laughs> okay. Keep taking those We're cities. Going. <laughs> we are going. Before the fall, it's out now in all outlets that still sell books. And again, if you've not seen Fargo 2, ask yourself, why have I not yet seen Fargo 2? 
and Good News FX airing a marathon, the kind of marathon that even I could run at the second installment, June the 4th, from 10 a.m. <laughs> to 8 p.m. Eastern time. It's just a flying saucer, Ed. We gotta go. Noah Hawley, thank you. Right on, right on.